That is a pretty heavy-duty piece of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, So there's nothing light and fluffy in this sermon. Hang on to your seats. Um, But we'll start with a story about a man. He came from North Korea to live in this country. He wasn't prepared for the incredible range of things in the shops. And he walked into a supermarket one day. And in the first aisle, he saw this thing. It said, powdered milk. Add water, and you get milk. And he thought, wow, that's amazing. Gets into the second aisle, and he sees another packet. that says, powdered orange juice. Add water, you get orange juice. He thought, that's fantastic. Gets into the third aisle, and it's the toiletries aisle. And he sees this box that says, baby powder. And he thinks, what a country. We live in this instant world where people expect things to happen so quickly. Adverts tell us we can learn a foreign language in a few minutes a day. The exercise videos come out and says you can have a perfectly toned body in 10 minutes a day. And that sells really well until somebody brings one out that says you can do it in 9 minutes a day. Everything is sort of instant, with minimum effort. But I put it to you that that expectation of an instant solution, a quick fix, has invaded the Christian church as well. It's quite easy to pick up a mindset that says, uh, having said yes to Jesus being our Savior, that makes us instantly mature disciples. Instantly saved, yes. But instant mature disciples, I'm afraid not. Because Jesus needs to become Lord and Master, not just Savior. We can't choose not to open our Bibles regularly or to sit and pray seriously or to serve and love those around us from one week to the next and expect to grow as followers of Christ. Contrast that with that sort of instant attitude with Jesus' statement. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. It really doesn't say, take up your cushions. It says, take up your cross. Instant salvation through faith in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, yes. But instant Christian, no such powder exists, I'm afraid. Our path to maturity, Jesus tells us, is one of self-denial. One of cross-carrying. A path of putting God first. A path of sacrificial giving. And sometimes it's really hard. Is it a path of joy and rejoicing? Absolutely, yes. The joy of knowing yourself loved for all eternity. The joy of being in relationship with your Heavenly Father. The joy of being part of God's new community on earth. But not the joy of a life of ease. And that's the path to maturity that our Lord has laid out for us. And these verses in Matthew 16 um, give us so many key issues about discipleship. What I'm going to try and do this morning is highlight some of them and leave you with questions. The questions are written on this yellow sheet you were given on the way in. Questions to maybe go away and ponder one or two of them this week as you seek to grow in maturity as a follower of Jesus. 
Verse 13 starts by telling us that Jesus had taken his disciples north to Caesarea. It's an area ruled by Philip. Uh, He had named this temple that dominated the area, um, built the temple in, in honor of Caesar. It paid for kings to do that kind of thing in those days. And there was a mountain nearby that Fable had it was the birthplace of the, of the ancient god Pan. So in this setting where Jesus has presumably gone to get some peace and quiet with his disciples, this setting actually spoke of a whole variety of pagan religions. And Jesus says in that place, who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples tell him that the people saying that you're a prophet, maybe one of the great prophets returned. And then the crunch question, and it's still the crunch question today. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Peter's the one that speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's an incredibly significant part of Matthew's story, as for the first time, Jesus' titles of Son of Man, Son of God, and Messiah, or Christ, the Greek version of it, come together. Now, Son of Man was Jesus' usual way of referring to himself. You probably know that. It's, it's quite ambiguous. It could just mean me, or it could refer to the one coming in power from on high in Daniel 7. But Messiah... The title that later, in its Greek form, Christ became so synonymous with Jesus, it's almost like his surname. Calling Jesus Messiah and Son of God, that was hugely significant. And it's still significant today. As Jesus asks each one of us, who do you say that I am? Just like in Caesarea, we live in a world full of different faiths and different religions. And we have to choose what we think about Jesus' very exclusive claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. Syncretism is where people combine ideas from different faiths and kind of make up what they want, sort of pick and mix religion. The first general secretary of the World Council of Churches, Willem uh, Visser de Hooft, once asked, was asked what he thought was the chief danger to the Christian faith. And he said, syncretism, it's far more dangerous to the church than atheism ever will be. And he's been proved right over the years. This kind of pick-and-mix approach to faith is not limited to New Agers who take little bits of what they want from anywhere. We all, quite frankly, face a temptation to receive the bits of Jesus' teaching that we like and ignore the hard bits that just seem to challenge what we want our lifestyles to be, a bit too much. So my first questions for you to ponder today are, first of all, the big one. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Are you still exploring who he is? If you're still exploring, let me encourage you to keep looking, because he will be found. And the second question, if you're at the point of saying, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, are you prepared to accept him as Messiah, as Son of God, whose whole teaching is to be received, even the hard bits. 
And on this Pentecost Sunday, what might the Spirit of God be saying to your heart about some of those bits that you're struggling with? Then in verse 17, Jesus says to Peter that his realization that Jesus was the Messiah did not come from his own clever working out and sort of mental work and his reasoning. It was revealed to him by God, and it is ever thus. Only the Holy Spirit can help us understand who Jesus is. St. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Only God can open eyes that are spiritually blind, which is why prayer is the foundation of any fruitful evangelism. I spent a large part of my life teaching and encouraging people in evangelism, and we always start with this issue of prayer. I'm really encouraged to see how you've taken on the Archbishop's call to prayer over these nine days. And one part of that encouragement, I don't know if you've particularly picked that up here, is to be praying for five people you know that they may come to faith. Lots of us wearing little leather bands with five knots on them. In some churches I call it a rosary. I probably wouldn't hear, would I? But just that reminder that to hold people before God persistently, sometimes for decades, that their eyes would be unblinded. On the back of your sermon notes, you'll see a a thing called the blessed prayer. I don't know about you, but just saying, dear Lord, um, please make Johnny a Christian, is a pretty dry prayer, and it sort of turns Johnny into conversion fodder, instead of saying, Lord, we really want to see Johnny blessed. And I find this little BLESS acronym prayer helpful. I give it to you in case you do. Um, The the, the, the acronym is, we pray for Johnny's body, or Janet's body, their their health, their well-being, for their labor, their work, be that at school or in the home or uh, in a workplace, for their emotional life, for their social life, their friendships, their human relationships, and then their spiritual life and their relationship with God. And just praying around that kind of more holistic way, says, God, will you bless these people? So in light of Jesus' statement to Peter that it was God who revealed the truth to him, my next question to you is, who are you regularly praying for that they may come to know the living God? One, two, three, four, five people, however many it is, do seek to bless people in that way, way beyond this special nine days of prayer. Then we get to verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And these are some of the most argued over verses in Christian history. There's a Catholic interpretation that Peter is the rock, and all the doctrines of papal authority flow from that. There's a Protestant interpretation that says it's Peter's faith that is the rock. I suggest to you that the truth, as so often, is actually neither of those extremes. In Peter, Jesus sees a person of real faith. And he says, on such a person, I can build my church. And that counts both specifically for Peter as leader of that first group, but also for others who will follow. And so the question for us becomes, are we people of faith 
that Jesus can use to build his church. Then in verse 19, there's some very odd phrases about being given the keys to heaven and loosing and binding. These are uh, rabbinical terms. um, And what Jesus is saying is not that the apostles will have um, the authority to judge who goes to heaven or not. That's the role of the risen, ascended Christ. What he's given here is essentially a call to evangelism. Jesus is saying that as his followers of those who've received his truth, we can make God's kingdom either available or unavailable to others, depending on whether we're prepared to witness or not. You cannot control people's response to Jesus. But you can make sure that they won't respond by failing to tell them about him in the first place. In that sense, the keys are ours. And on this Pentecost day, as we celebrate that the Spirit was poured and is poured upon the church, just as Jesus promised, poured to enable the church to witness with power, our next questions are these. Are you ready to witness so that others have a chance to respond to Jesus? To say to someone this week, hey, we got this really good thing going on in church next week. Would you like to come with me? Not would you like to go, that doesn't work, but would you like to come with me? And are you constantly asking for the equipping of the Spirit to witness effectively in ways that build trust with people? In verse 20, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Now that was a short-term command so that people wouldn't misrepresent Jesus' ministry then. He overturned it after the resurrection when he sent us out to witness. But you could make an argument to say it's the one command that Christians are really quite keen to still keep, that we don't tell anybody who he is. Like Arctic rivers, we're frozen at the mouth. Now I know you did a lot of work on that before you had your mission last year. But it's a key issue. Effective evangelism now, assuming that the prayer stuff is in place, usually begins with personal conversations, not sermons. Because people are so far back, they need to hear your stories and how God's affected your life in a, in a trusting relationship. It's stories and experiences that people will listen to. They don't see why they should listen to a church that they don't connect with. But your witness will cut through that. It's another kind of two-hour training session to talk about how we do that fruitfully. And I'm touring the diocese at the moment with that. I'm coming to your connections group in, in the autumn, I think, to talk with the leaders there. But the thing to remember for now is this. You being able to stutter out a few semi-coherent words about why your faith is important to you may be the vital link for someone coming to know Jesus and receiving eternal salvation. So are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you? The next section from verse 21 to 28 has got some more key lessons in it. The first is not to define Jesus by our preconceptions. Verse 21 to 23, we've got Jesus explaining he's going to go to Jerusalem, as the disciples expected, but that his fate would be to suffer at the hands of the authorities, to be executed, and on the third day raised again. 
Now, I'm pretty sure the disciples didn't even hear the raised again bit because they'll have got completely stuck on the, hang on, arrested and executed. The Messiah, in popular understanding, was supposed to free the Jews from the tyranny of Roman occupation. He would make them again preeminent as God's people in the world. Messiahs didn't get killed by the authorities. The Messiah got killed by the authorities that would show they were a false Messiah. How hard it was for these men to accept what Jesus was saying about his Messiahship and suffering. So Peter takes Jesus aside and says essentially, Master, this is not a good plan for a general who wants to win the war. With me beside you, it won't happen this way. But Jesus' response seems really harsh. He says, get behind me, Satan. Wow, if Michael Phillips said that to you, you kind of went, woo, do I want to come back here? That's heavy-duty stuff. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So the one, Peter, whose faith was such that Jesus could build his church on him a few verses ago, is now told he's the mouthpiece of Satan. But think what's at stake here. Through Peter's words, Satan is tempting Jesus again, as he had in the wilderness a couple of years earlier, to use his power to impose his rule, rather than letting go of that power and walking the way of the cross. Jesus' mission was at stake, so he reacted very firmly. But what caused Peter to get it so wrong when earlier he'd been so right? I suggest to you it's essentially... He let his preconceptions of what Messiah was to be override what God was actually telling him. And that's still a danger for us today. You know, no sensible reading of the New Testament would leave you to believe that being a fairly decent person would be enough to be welcomed into eternal life when you die. But people can attend church for years and still hold on to that because they listen to their preconceptions. No sensible reading of the New Testament would lead you to believe that following Jesus is a part-time occupation. That we can get involved maybe an evening a week and on a Sunday, and then Monday to Friday we forget all about it. Having seen Peter's error, the obvious questions for us to ask ourselves are, do we have any blind spots, any preconceptions that stop us maturing as disciples? Do we ignore any inconvenient or hard teachings because they don't fit with what we want? Questions to ponder this week. And then finally in verse 24 to 28, Jesus speaks of what our path of discipleship will be like. This is where we started today. Jesus saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And we sell people short if we tell them that everything about the Christian life will be wonderful in the short term. As an evangelist, I found myself over the years setting the bar higher and higher. I used to kind of make it really easy and say, yeah, pray the prayer, that's great. I'm getting a little notch in my Bible. I set the bar higher and higher now and make people count the cost much more before they commit. Surprising, that's kind of what Jesus did too. He makes it clear that there is reward in this life and in eternity. 
in relationship with him, in relationship with other believers. We will share in his triumph. We can live as those with real purpose and understanding of what life's about. But the price may well be suffering in this world. Don't be surprised if sometimes being a Christian is tough. It's in the job description. There is a spiritual battle that rages, and we're wrapped up in it. No fight, no victory, no cross, no crown. We will be much better equipped to resist Satan's advances if we acknowledge the battle and prepare. No one would walk around a war zone in flip-flops and a sun hat. So why walk into a spiritual war zone without your armor? So my final question to you is this. Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to equip me for living this Christian life? Or am I ignoring Jesus' warnings about this spiritual battleground? And on the back of the sheet, there's a, another prayer. It's a way to pray on the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. And praying that on each morning can be a really good way to start the day and say, Lord, I'm going in to your battleground, equipped by you. So this kind of momentous passage in the middle of Matthew's explanation of Jesus' ministry can cause us to ask ourselves a whole series of questions. Questions that will lead us into a deep and a lasting discipleship, a deep and rich, eternal relationship with Christ. So my encouragement to you as we end is to look down that list of questions this week and think which are the important ones for you, maybe one or two of them, to take away and to ponder. And if you work on those, in a week's time you'll be back here, even closer to God than you are now. Shall we pray?